morning, everyone. Uh, I'm John. My surname is Paul, just to remind you. Um, great to be with you. Great to see you all. Um, I, uh, I came without my laptop this morning. I had to do an about turn and go back home and get it. And then I thought, oh, I don't really need it, but I do. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I love what uh, Faye was saying about uh, Community Sunday, because the last Community Sunday I was at her house, and um, it, was, it was good. I have, I have a, a memory of Chi-Chi, who's not here today, so I can talk about her. I thought you were going to show the video of Chi-Chi, because she taught us a little song, and the only line I can remember is, I'm not going to steal from my mother's purse. <laughs> anyway, it was great, uh, and it was well worth being there, so you're going to have a full house this time, <laughs> or fuller. Um, yeah, uh, the power of prayer. Um, I have to confess that I feel totally unworthy to give this talk about the power of prayer. In some ways, it's much easier for me to preach for 30 minutes than to pray for 30 minutes. And certainly since recently, God's been talking to me a lot about prayer. I'm finding it harder to pray. So if you're struggling with prayer... I suspect most of us here, one way or another, struggle at times with prayer. That's part of, well, the struggle that we go through. Uh, it is a difficult thing, prayer, and yet it is a most wonderful gift that God has given to his church, uh, and it's a most powerful help from God. And as I, was, I need to, as I was preparing this, and God keeps Is there someone here who speaks Russian this morning, or any morning? No. I just, I had this thing about Russia, um, and I, then I started reading a, a book about Pastor Basil Malov. I don't, we might have a picture of him there. Uh, that's um, Basil Malov. He was born in 1883 in Latvia, which, uh, Latvia, which was part of the, the old Russian Tsarist Empire. And uh, he became known as the Apostle of Russia. And um, he went to Spurgeon's Bible College, he trained there, and then when the, the Russia opened up a bit, uh, when there's, uh, uh, he rushed back to St. Petersburg and he began to evangelize students, and then he got evangelizing the working classes. The aristocracy in Russia at the time heard about these people who were being saved, drunkards and thieves and so on, and having their lives transformed. And so they wrote to him and said, we want you to send us these people to come and work for us because all our workers are thieves and drunkards and no good, but you're, these Christians are so different, we want them to come and work for us. So um, Basil Malov, he sent the, those people to the aristocracy said, go and cook the best that you can and witness for the blessed Lord. And before you know it, he had about 55 preachers, people who were able to preach the gospel effectively. And it spread throughout the empire. There was opposition from the Orthodox Church and threats from them and his hall where he had meetings were closed down. But his converts went from Moscow and from St. Petersburg churches that he had and they went throughout the land. And because of the opposition, uh, the police arrested him and he was to be exiled to Siberia. But the churches prayed 
And two days later, the sentence was cancelled. And instead, he was to be instantly banished from Russia. But God works in amazing ways. The prime minister's wife had been to some of his meetings and heard him preach. And she influenced her husband, who gave him 10 days to put his affairs in order. What did he do in those 10 days? He arranged 10 evangelistic meetings uh, where thousands of people attended. At the last meeting, over 500 people became Christians. And uh, he was exiled then to Sweden with his family, uh, and uh, revival spread wherever he went. There was revival, thousands being saved in Sweden and then in Norway. And then God spoke to him and said, they drove you away from your congregations in Russia, but I am bringing a congregation of Russians to you. And he heard about thousands and thousands of Russian soldiers who had been captured by the Germans on the Eastern Front in World War I. And so he started evangelizing amongst them. Over 30,000 were converted. And after the peace treaty of Versailles, they returned to Russia and backed by Malov's prayers, and powerful prayers they were, um, they began to be missionaries all over Russia. And the communist authorities estimated that as a result of all the work of Malov, that evangelicals grew from 10,000 to 6 million in 10 years. Amazing man. Nobody's heard of him. I didn't hear of him until I picked up this book, his biography. His biographer wrote in the early 1900s, he said, their experiences read like the book of Acts. For even today, he says, the Holy Spirit is adding glorious chapters to that book. Some were imprisoned and some were killed for Christ's sake. But the gospel was being spread. The power of prayer is amazing. Powerful prayer transforms evangelism into revival, just like in the book of Acts. And I mentioned before how we are living in subnormal church. The church, you know, God didn't give us this church in Acts just to look at. That's how the church is meant to be. A church that's motivated by prayer, empowered by prayer, and seeing lives transformed by, by prayer. So the church today is, is subnormal when we should be abnormal like the Acts church. And can that happen in our nation? A revival like took place in Russia. Our God is a God of revival. I love that song that says, We see what you can do, O God of wonders. Your power has no end. The things you've done before, in greater measure, you will do again. Because there's no prison wall you can't break through, no mountain you can't move. All things are possible. The darkest night, you can light it up. You can light it up, God of revival. Let hope arise. Death is overcome. You've already won. God of revival. That's our God. Revival in New Testament times, revival taking place throughout history because the church was praying. And I just felt God wanted me to encourage you to pray for revival this morning. And I was going to take you through the first 11 chapters of Acts and I sort of analyzed it out a bit. But right from the beginning, I'm not going to take you through this because I have other stuff I want to say now, I think, since I prepared the slide. But um, the slide, you know, Acts chapter 1 
the, the, there was 120 constantly praying and the Holy Spirit came. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost and 3,000 saved. Acts chapter 3 and 4, the number, Peter preaches and the number grew to 5,000. And if you go right through Acts, Acts chapter 5, and Annas and Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie and they die. And there's miracles and wonders. And it says more and more people believed. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says the number of disciples was increasing. Acts chapter 6 and 7, it says the number of disciples increased rapidly. Chapter 8, Philip preaches and there's miracles. Great joy in the city. Why? Because lots of people are being transformed by the gospel. Acts chapter 9, Saul is converted. He preaches fearlessly. Church grew in numbers is what it says. Acts chapter 9, Peter travels. Aeneas is healed. All who saw him turned to the Lord. Dorcas is raised from the dead. Many people believed in the Lord. Acts chapter 10, uh, the angels sent... sent uh, the angel was sent to Peter, the vision's let down from, uh, to, to Cornelius, and Peter has a vision at the same time of the animals, and, uh, and the gospel spreads into the Gentile world, and all who were there were baptized, and so on. It just goes on and on. Acts chapter 11, a great number of people believed because the church was persecuted and spread over all the area, and wherever they went, they spread the gospel, just like those soldiers and those people from Malov's time. And Barnabas encouraged the church there, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. It was prayer, it was proclamation, it was lots of people coming to Christ, and persecution. That's normal church. We haven't had the persecution yet. I don't think we've had much of the other either. So, let's read Acts chapter 12 this morning. It was about this time that King Herod, about this time means about the time when the church was growing rapidly and there was beginning of persecution. Uh, about this time that Her King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval amongst the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Verse 5, listen to this. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for him. That was the solution. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison and he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. It's more likely he was half awake and half asleep. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent 
his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Note that. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. Notice that they were praying, but they weren't praying with expectancy. They expected less than God wanted to do. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And you can read on about what happened to Herod too. I want to talk about, I've got three headings, I think, or four. Um, Firstly, the powerful persecutor. Um, Up to Acts 12, the church has been growing rapidly. Many people are being converted, including Saul of Tarsus. And there's a highly successful work amongst the Gentiles and the Jews going on in Antioch. Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great who ordered the slaughter of the innocents at Jesus' birth and wanted to attempt to kill the baby Jesus. He was a nephew of the Herod who put John the Baptist to death uh, to please a dancing girl and her mother. And he was also a friend of the Emperor Caligula who was one of the most cruel Roman, Roman emperors, a ruthless killer. He always wanted to keep the Jews on his side And so persecution, chopping the head off James, was no problem for him, he thought. When that pleased the Jews, he decided to intensify the persecution and to end Peter's successful leadership of the church, of the growing church. Just two thoughts I want to leave you about that little section, the powerful persecutor. Firstly, behind all evil rulers and empires are the powers of Satan and his demonic armies. How else can we understand today the horrors of Ukraine or the cruel treatment of Christians in North Korea, Nigeria, and so many other places in the world? But Daniel prophesied, in, right through his book, uh, he prophesied though in chapter 7 that there would be a line of, of evil empires opposed to God throughout every church age or every age of the church. Read chapter 7. But what the book of Daniel emphasizes, and, and it's, it's in a stunning fashion, that from the very beginning is that God is the one who rules over the kingdom of man and gives dominion to whom he wills and, and takes it when he so chooses. You know, Pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea. Nebuchadnezzar went mad. In the Acts 12, 23, if you read on, you'll find about Herod's gory ending. Daniel's encouraging vision in chapter 7 is of the ancient of days, our God, who needs only to speak a word 
and any human empire is destroyed. You see, the victory has been won. Satan has been defeated and disarmed by Jesus on the cross. That's Colossians 3, 14, and so on. And we Christians are to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are in a war. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the war, on the of the world, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We conquer through one of the powerful weapons is prayer, powerful prayer. The second thing that just struck me, and I'm not going to um, elaborate on it much, but bad things can happen to good people. We need to know that. That will be the situation until Christ returns. Being a Christian does not exempt us from cruel dictators, troubles, illnesses, car crashes, unemployment, famine, war, persecution. James was executed, but Peter was rescued. Why? I was reading an article in a magazine, it's called The Plow Magazine, and there's an article in it, and it just struck me as relevant. It says, everything will not be okay. You can't protect your children from tragedy. Uh, just as, listen to this, those of you are parents. This is one parent speaking. I try not to tell my children that everything will be all right. If they are hurt, I tell them that they are okay if they are okay, and that a doctor will fix them up if a doctor needs to fix them up. If they are scared, I tell them that they are safe if they are safe, and that I am here for them and with them no matter what. If they are anxious, I ask them what they are anxious about and we talk through their feelings and reality, including the reality of their feelings. But I don't want to get into the habit of saying everything will be all right because everything will not always be all right. The goal we aim for, for in our family is to bear everyday apocalypses, not with flinty stoicism, but with the faithful confidence that every revelation of God's will in our time and at the end of time is also a revelation of God's grace. This is because the greatest trauma in history was the greatest triumph beyond the cross is the resurrection. And I could go on to it, but that's the truth. Uh, it's in this magazine. If you want to have a look at it afterwards, it's there. Please don't take it away because I haven't started reading the magazine yet. Well, I might let you. I might be very kind and gracious. Yes, I'm a lovely person. Um, secondly, uh, the praying people. This is really important. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. I've not been persecuted or put in prison for my faith. I do know people who have. I've been to Myanmar uh, some years ago, and I remember one Sunday morning, one Saturday, they were talking about who's going to speak on Sunday morning. There was three or four of us from my denomination, and they said, would somebody like to preach tomorrow morning? And there was silence, really, and I said, well, I'm happy to preach. And, uh, and then uh, uh, the pastor said, one of the pastors from Myanmar said, you realize you could get arrested and put in prison? And I said, well, okay, um, but I'm still happy to preach. Uh, then he said, but don't worry, we know how to get you out. I thought, well, that's good, I said. I said, but we don't know how long it will take to get you out. <laughs> um, so, it, so I preached and I had a great time. Um, and, you know, I have a, I have a, a little piece of 
here, I have a little stone. I'm not taking out of the plastic bag, a little stone. Because on our last day there, they said to us in the evening, um, would you like to go into Chin State? That's one of the states where Christians are really badly persecuted. And uh, we, were, we were staying in a town that was quite close to the border of Chin State. And the other guys who were with me, they, they didn't say anything. I said, well, I wouldn't mind going to Chin State. And they said, well, that's good. Um, we, have one, we have to go through the border, and there's soldiers on guard. But um, one of them comes to our church, so he might be able to get us through. So we all packed into a van and we drove across the border and they just took us a mile up the road, stopped the car and said, do you want to get out? This is Chin State. So we got out and we, we just prayed together for the persecuted church in Chin State. And I picked up a piece of, of stone to remind me of that and to pray for the persecuted church. And when we got back, the first question, we took us back to a restaurant. When we got back, the first question, all the pastors were there, asked was, did you go? Because they wanted us to identify with our persecuted brothers and sisters. And that was just such a moving moment. And they were so thrilled that just we had done that, just gone over the border. In Jerusalem, they were experiencing persecution. By this time, there were over 5,000 people in the church. There were prayer meetings going on in the homes all over Jerusalem for Peter. The one mentioned here was in a large house because it had a large, an, an outer entrance. And uh, it says there were many people had gathered. They were united in one aim that was focused on Peter, a church who knew the promises of God. You know, Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the days of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. That was a great prayer for our nation that we call upon the Lord for our nation in its day of trouble, which is today. It's in a mess. And the nation will honor God when he brings revival. Um, this was a prayer that was a prayer of purpose bigger than Peter himself. This is opposition to gospel proclamation. That's why Peter was in prison. They knew about Peter's vision that he'd seen that sheet come down from heaven with all the unclean animals on it. And Peter realizing that God was calling him to take the gospel to Gentiles. So he goes to Cornelius' house and he gets filled with the spirit and wonderful things happen. And God's plan was to reach the world. To reach the world. That was what was on their hearts when they prayed. It wasn't just about Peter. It was about the gospel going to the ends of the world. And they knew about united prayer. You know, right from Acts chapter 1, when all joined together constantly in prayer, they were united in powerful prayer. You know, when we move from praying alone to praying together... We move into a realm, um, well, we move into a realm which results are calculated exponentially from the realm of addition to multiplication. For every person added, the prayer power is multiplied. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us, Ephesians 3.20. How much more how much more uh, will the Father give the Holy Spirit? If we ask, we are more, I love all the mores, we, we are more than conquerors. And so, you know, the more who pray, 
the greater the results. Leviticus 26 speaks, you know, about that. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Joshua 23, each one of you will put to flight a thousand of the enemy, for the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. This is powerful prayer because it was the whole church together. I don't know that I've got a picture there of uh, a, a young man. Uh, next slide, maybe. Yes. Anybody know this man? Andrew should know. Uh, this is Jeremiah McNeely. He was one of four men. He doesn't, he's an old man when this was taken, but when he was a young man, he was one of four young men who prayed in a school in Northern Ireland for revival. And as a result of his prayer, and in case you think you don't want to be an old man, let's have the next slide. This is another one who was there at that prayer meeting, James McQuilkin. And they prayed, four men, hundreds of thousands were saved and lives transformed and the moral life of the province uh, radically changed um, through their prayer. Imagine that. Just imagine... We have a little, David has talked about a little prayer tower up at the corner of the building here. And it was going to be a prayer tower. And just imagine four people praying every hour, 24 hours a day up there. Imagine a weekly prayer meeting here with 50 or nights of prayer with 100 people praying. Are you up for it? All things are possible. Will you join a prayer army? Our nation is in danger in so many ways. We were praying, six of us on Friday morning, down uh, on the river, on the quayside, and we went to where Wesley's, there's a plaque on the wall that tells you that Wesley preached there. And uh, you go there today, you can't see that plaque because it's, that part has been taken over by a pub. And there's a, a monument there that mentions Wesley on it, and you can't read it because you can't get close enough. Now, what a disaster. What's going on in our nation that we want to block out any memory of, of Wesley's ministry and impact on our nation? Our nation needs prayer. It's in danger in so many ways. But if God's people pray, all things are possible. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. It actually begins with us. It begins with us. Searching our hearts. Humbling ourselves. Turning from the wrong that's in our lives. Revival begins in the church. So that the church goes to the community and the gospel goes to the community. The prayer for people. The powerful prayer... Powerful prayer, um, it says the, the church was earnestly praying to God for Peter. Um, the word there for earnestly is a word ektenos, or ektenos, yeah, yeah ektenos. And it's a word out of ek and teno, and it's, it's the word from, I think we get extend. Um, it's literally stretched outly. Um, it's, a, it's a medical term which describes the stretching of a muscle to its limits. Their prayer muscles were being stretched to the limit. Uh, a couple of, it was nearly two weeks now, uh, jo, um, 
John Mackenzie there and I went walking for two days on the Roman Wall. And I remember, the, uh, John, remember that first steep, steep hill that we went up and our muscles were being, well, they were aching a bit, but we didn't stop. We stretched them a bit more, allowed them to be stretched a bit more, we got to the top. And that was just a little hill, really. But the word has got that idea about stretching. It's the idea of perseverance, not giving up, and the idea of intensity, the fervor, the urgency. True prayer, someone said, is, and this is about intercessory intercessors, true prayer is an aggressive, unseen closet ministry in cooperation with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of dislodging the powers of darkness from the strategic position which they occupy in the church and in the world. It's true, the enemies at work in the church, we're his number one target. This kind of prayer brings God into the battle. This kind of prayer brings revival. Powerful prayer is is fervent, and secondly, it's persistent. Peter was arrested at the beginning of the eight-day Passover celebration. Herod was unable to chop off Peter's head immediately because the Jews didn't allow executions during that that Passover celebrations. So the church was praying, probably could be up to eight days they were praying, with no answer. Heaven was silent for eight days, but the church kept stoking the fires of prayer because they were a people of faith and confidence in God. They kept on praying day after day, night after night. And it's true, isn't it? So often we give up praying for things. We don't see the answers. You know, this praying for revival is not an afternoon stroll. It may be a long prayer marathon with lots of hills if we are to see revival. Will you get involved? Will you persist in prayer? And powerful prayer is authoritative prayer. The early church knew the secret of overcoming through the weapon of prayer. They conquered on their knees. They went forward on their knees. They lived at the very throne of God. You know, it's a wonderful thing that Jesus has made it possible for us to have access to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. We have access to the throne room, to the the whole strategic planning room for the universe. We have access to that. Isn't that an amazing thing? That amazing. It's not enough that we resist the devil who seeks to deceive and divide and make the church impotent. We are to resist the devil so that he will flee from us. This is not a hold the fort operation. This is to see the enemy running away in defeat. Put on the whole armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. I wonder what that meant, but it really means after you've done everything, after you've beaten the enemy and he's run off, you're still standing there ready for another conquest when he tries again. Paul says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, for I am convinced that neither life nor death and so on and so on. Are you convinced, like Paul, of the authority that we have over our enemy? Are you exercising your authority in this powerful, persistent, authoritative prayer? And powerful prayer is desperate. How desperate are you to see revival in our nation? How desperate are you? 
Are you desperate? To see the church set on fire by the Holy Spirit, to see multitudes of the lost coming to Christ, to see our nation transformed by the gospel. I mean, does it bring tears to your eyes? Does it bring desperation in your heart? You know, I think of Jesus in Gethsemane. It says, on being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, more fervor. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He was desperate, so he prayed more fervently. His prayer muscles were straining. This is the Son of God. Straining, but he stretched them even more. Desperate to bring salvation to the cross. Prepared to lay down his life for the salvation of the world. Are you desperate enough to forsake all and follow him and pray? James Stewart, who I've spoken about, who God used much in Eastern Europe, Europe, said, I have discovered in my own revival ministry that God only answers desperate prayers. I think of Hannah in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, praying desperately that God would give her a son in the temple, and Eli thought she was drunk. She said, I've been praying out of my great anguish and grief. And her prayer was answered, and it was Samuel, in many ways, brought revival to the nation. Luke 11, you know the story of the man who has a visitor late at night, and he's got no bread to give to him, so he goes and knocks on his neighbor's door at the middle of the night, and he's banging on it. He's banging on it because he's desperate. He's desperate. He's got boldness. He's barefaced, shameless to wake his neighbor up in the middle of the night because he was desperate to feed his friend to feed and you know the church we are praying for revival so that we will have bread to give to the hungry lost of, of our world Jesus is telling desperate people in Luke 11 he's telling him go on asking go on seeking go on knocking like that man on heaven's door confident that our father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him he will empower us He will transform the church. He will transform us to the degree that a community is just so attracted to us. The community becomes desperate to meet this Jesus. And we have the peaceful Peter. I don't need to say anything about Peter. He was asleep. (laughs) Imagine that. You're going to have your head chopped off the next day and you're sleeping between two guards and they're probably talking because they can't go to sleep in case he escapes. Well, whether they were awake or asleep, he escaped. Because God was in it. Call upon me on the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will honor me. And Peter wanted to honor them. So he went back to the house where they were praying and told them what had happened to him. And he gives God the glory. And he says, tell James and the brothers about this because he wanted them to be encouraged in God and in the power of prayer. Let me end. Prayer is the only power of a powerless people. We have no power. We're not like the emperor. What else can we do but pray to our God, who is the king of kings? Prayer is a statement of faith in the power of God. Who else can we look to? Prayer is a door opener for the supernatural activity of God. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Prayer opening 
a door for God to act in so many supernatural ways that people are drawn to Christ by all that he does. Basil Maloff, his motto was, Lord, help me to accomplish the most for you in the shortest possible time. <laughs> I love that. He had a plaque on which there was one word written, others. That's what was on his heart, others. Those who don't know Christ. And at one point early on, when he was in England at, the, at um, Spurgeon's College, he sought out Evan Roberts, who was one of the men God used in the Welsh Revival. And he said to him, pray for me, please, that I might have a baptism of power and pray that I might be a chosen instrument for dark Russia. And that prayer was answered. He became that. Do you need to have a baptism of power today? Do you need to know that you are a chosen instrument for dark England, maybe for dark Russia? I feel there's somebody somewhere around that knows us that's, that's got a call to Russia. Maybe someone here, I don't know. Um, I just felt that as I was preparing. Let's, I want to pray. Can I invite you just to get on your knees, if you can get on your knees, just where you are. Just get on your knees. Just take a few moments in quiet. Oh, God. And just let God search your life. Search your heart. Let him point out the things that get in the way of prayer. Get in the way of totally surrendering to him. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. We invite you to come. Oh Lord, come and just touch us and show us how you see us, not how we see ourselves. Show us our need of you, of more of you. Show us where we're content to stay where we are when you want to take us much further, that you have so much more for us. Show us our lack of prayer and and, oh Lord, we just need a baptism of your power. Just bring it to God. Bring it to Jesus. Let him touch you. Holy Spirit, come.